This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. For today's show about changing an organization's culture in the aftermath of the big public sexual harassment scandal. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to have you join in the conversation. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So even though you're listening to business radio right now, chances are you've also tuned into NPR at some point. Known for their journalistic integrity and consistently excellent and delightful programming, The sexual harassment allegations made against NPR's former senior vice president for news were especially shocking and disappointing. Never mind the outside report that exposed the staff's, quote, very prominent distrust of management. Fortunately, the storied media organization had a powerful solution right on their own team, Lauren Mayer, who rose through the ranks to be appointed as the president of operations in September of this year. She's joining us today to talk about how she's putting her unique background to work to preserve what's good and write what's wrong at the national treasure that is NPR. Our phones are open. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And we'd love to take your calls. Join in the conversation. Once again, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Before I bring Lauren on, I want to share a little bit about her because I find her background utterly amazing. She currently oversees, she's a big job. She's overseeing daily operations and the leadership of NPR's, get this, programming, legal, HR, business development, diversity, engineering, IT, distribution, member partnership, and policy and representation groups. She's prepared for this because of all the things she's done before. She previously served as chief operating officer and as NPR's senior vice president of strategy. She's held the role of vice president of strategy and ventures at PBS and prior to that served as the vice president of media strategies and technologies at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. She consulted for three years for McKinsey and Company, working primarily with clients in the nonprofit and media sectors, for which she was exceptionally well-prepared because she also has been a university professor with a PhD in theater history. So this is truly a Renaissance woman who I think is relying all on all of her past experiences for what she's doing today. So with that, I couldn't be more honored to welcome Lauren Mayer to the show today. Lauren, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So Lauren, you took on two of the most daunting leadership tasks a person can take on at the same time. You rose from within an organization into its leadership role, and you also came into that role to be a fixer. How did you figure out what to do first? Well, we had such an acute crisis here um, that it was very clear that we had to act and we had to act fast. Um, And at least for me, it was such an overwhelming moment that the only thing I really could do to start was to listen. And that's what I did when, you know, when we learned that there were uh, harassment allegations against our head of news um, and he was let go. There was a lot of anger and frustration in the organization. And it it was so deep um, that I, I, 
I needed to understand it better. And so the thing I did to start out was I held what I called listening sessions. I met with groups of no more than 20 people around the organization. Anybody could sign up. Um, I did this, you know, pretty much day after day, hour after hour, just said to people, please explain to me what the issues are, what's wrong, and to the degree that you have thoughts, let's talk about what you think we should be doing better. As you were doing this, as you were starting to listen, were you getting pressure to start taking action, or did the community give you the room and the time to do this? Well, it's funny. I think um, when you're in a crisis moment, you, you sort of get this tunnel vision, and everything feel every day feels like it lasts a year <laughs> or a month. Um, so it felt like a very long time had gone by, um, you know, uh, our head of news was let go uh, on November 1st. I s probably started listening sessions, you know, days after that. Um, and ultimately, I was I was hearing a lot. I was beginning to see themes. Um, and what I said to the organization was that I was going to have an all-staff meeting, which was in the middle of December, at which point I would share what I had learned and outline a plan forward. And that's what I did. So people knew where we were going. It, You know, when I think back on it, it felt like a lifetime, but really it was five or six weeks. Um, and I think people wanted change right away. They wanted action immediately. And there were things we were doing even in that period. Um, but I knew I needed to understand the facts before we could do anything. Absolutely. What you said about the way that it felt like so much time, it reminds me of parenting. People said the years fly by, the days take forever. Um, that It's an intense process to listen to all of that anger and all of that pain. Um, and you also were a member of this organization, and these were your colleagues. Um, how did you handle your own feelings about it and get yourself in a place so that you could hear everyone else? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I was, I'm a member of the organization. I was also a member of the leadership team. So when people were angry at, quote unquote, the organization, they were angry at me. You know, I had had a seat at the table where decisions were made that they disagreed with. So um, in some ways, it was very personal. Um, and in some ways, people were talking about issues that had been in this organization long before I got here. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I had to just give myself a little bit of space to say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hear for the whole organization um, and not and not take it all personally. Did you ever reflect back to the people that you were talking to um, that this was challenging? Or did you have to bottle that up as part of being in a leadership role? You know, um, I really didn't talk about that. There was not, it was not a moment where there was a lot of sympathy uh, <laughs> for sure. the way that management was feeling. I don't think anybody, you know, ha ha yeah, uh, felt <laughs> like they were all that concerned about my inner angst. Um, so no, that just, that wasn't part of the discussion. I, you know, one of the things that was really helpful for me was I, I called these things listening sessions. And at some point early on, I really clung to that name. I realized that my role in coming to these meetings was really to listen. It wasn't to have a counter argument. It wasn't to explain. It wasn't to justify what I'd done or what anybody had done. It was really to give people the time and the space to hear. Um, and I had been, I'd been scared because I had been worried. People will ask questions and I won't have the answers. And so it, it felt very comforting actually to realize I'm not going into these rooms to have the answers. I'm really going in to understand the problems. Lauren, I feel like we should tweet that out because right there, I think, reflects what's so important and special about the leadership that you're bringing to NPR, that 
we often, in leadership roles, I think especially as women sometimes, feel pressured to have the answer. Uh, and that really the strongest thing we can do, the biggest, um, bravest thing we can do is actually to stand there and listen um, when we don't know the answer and be honest about that. It also seems strategic because it probably gave you enough time to take in all you were hearing and processing it, processing without a knee-jerk reaction. I think that's right. I think the other piece that ended up being more important than I even realized was um, after I had done this listening, I tried to synthesize what I had heard into both the the issues that had come up and the steps, the solution steps that I was going to take. And so we had an all-staff meeting. It lasted about an hour. And I, I, I literally stood up and I said, you know, for the first half of this, I'm just going to reflect back what I heard. And I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to share with the whole company what people are feeling here. And and I said, you know, what I'm going to talk about is kind of like the seven stages of grief, except with less hope, because it was just <laughs> unrelentingly negative how people were feeling. And I said, and then we're going to talk about the path forward and what we can do um, and how we're going to get out of this. And when it was over, so many people said, you know, I'd never heard somebody in a leadership position articulate what I was feeling, articulate the sense of powerlessness that I had. And so listening was important, but also reflecting that back and and validating it by doing, you know, by being in a leadership position and letting people know that they'd been heard and that what they said was meaningful. I think that was another really important piece of our ability to kind of navigate through this moment. It's amazing. It's such a fundamentally human thing to let people know that you've heard them. Yet it's um, kind of ironic, maybe sad, that it's not a common business practice, that this was so unusual. What helped you see that this was the way to do this? Well, I would say one thing um, that, that I only actually realized afterwards, which is that, you know, at NPR, we believe that listening changes people. We believe listening changes the world. That is our business. That is what we do. And so why was it surprising that listening internally also was an important path forward? Um, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of core to who we are. Um, but I think that in, in some ways uh, it's also it, it's part of my DNA also. Um, you know, as you said, I have a fairly non-traditional background um, and I... One of the skills I think I have is that I have empathy and that I, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I, I believe in collaboration. And I've always believed that if you have more smart people together in a room, you're going to come up with a better answer. And you only do that if you listen to the people around the table. Right. That's the critical thing. Otherwise, you could drown each other out. Was some of this part of your theater background? You know, I think it probably was. Uh, you know, one of the key skills in theater and certainly in improv uh, is to, you know, to listen to the person, you know, standing next to you. You know, in improv, they talk about the importance of saying yes and. So if you're if you're working with somebody and they throw something at you in order to have good improv, you, you have to go with it. You have to say, yes, you know, the sky is purple and. <laughs> right. um, so it's a way of acknowledging being present making sure you're present enough to hear confirming that to the person you're talking with and building upon it. And it sounds like I, that's exactly what you were doing. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think um, and it, it is something that I think I 
is a skill that I've had. I do think, you know, many people have it, but I do think a lot of women bring that uh, to the table and don't always appreciate what an asset it actually is. So one of the other challenges it sounds like you had to face over and over and over again is walking to an, into a room of 20 people who have a lot of things to share that are not easy to talk about and not easy to listen to. How did you manage those rooms? Um, how did you make sure everyone was heard? Who took notes? What were the details of how those meetings unfolded? It was just me. Um, I I didn't walk in with anybody else. I mean, I walked in pretty unadorned. Um, I started every meeting by saying, because uh, we're an organization full of journalists, you know, that this is effectively off the record. Um, and I explained to everybody that I was going to take copious notes because I wanted to, you know, remember and see themes and, and understand, but that I wasn't, I wasn't going to attribute anything anybody said to them specifically, and that. I wasn't going to leave that room and go back and talk to a single manager and say, you'll never guess what this person who works for you said, that whatever they said was going to stay with me and that I was going to use it in a more aggregated and anonymous way. So those were those were the ground rules in the room. Um, you know, and then uh, I, I started every meeting by saying, you know, I just really want to hear what's on your mind, what what issues you see, um, and to the degree that you have any solutions to offer, things you think I should know. And then I would stop, and then it would be dead silent every time. Um, it's like and it's then I would group dynamics exercise. Ex Who's going to exactly, talk first? Exactly. And then I would always say, this is what happens every time. It's quiet. <laughs> and then finally somebody says, okay, I'll go first. Um, and that is literally what happened. And then as soon as somebody started talking, the floodgates just opened. Um, and in some ways, I got to watch the organization move through a little of its pain actually in these sessions. You know, in the early meetings, people just cried. I mean, people were, people care so deeply about NPR and they hold themselves and the organization to such a high standard that they were so disappointed and betrayed uh, by the organization that it was, it was just painful. Um, and then, over time, that sort of stopped. People got angrier. There was a lot more yelling in the room. Um, <laughs> Which probably meant they felt safer. I Hopefully. Um, and then over time, even that sort of faded and people got a little bit more pragmatic. You know, I've really been thinking and this is an issue and this is what I think you should do. As you were having these conversations, Lauren, you're, you must have started to hear, hear repeated things. A little rondo form must have been starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Did you ever reflect back in the room that you have heard these things before and dig deeper, or was each room a fresh start? I did reflect back, um, usually to try to dig deeper. Um, we we have a board member here who is, is just a, f a very funny and always full of quips, and one of his quips is that, um, you know, you'll, you'll have a big group conversation, and he'll say, well, I think everything's already been said, but not by me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I think there's something to that. Everybody needs their chance to say their piece. So I didn't want to shut things down by saying, yeah, yeah, I heard that move on. Um, but I did want to acknowledge, yeah, this seems to be a real theme that I'm hearing. You know, tell me more about what you're seeing. So that also suggests that these meetings, they weren't just information for you. They were part of a process of healing for the whole community. I, I think that they were. I think people really needed space you know I mean it, it, when 
and maybe this is a bad analogy, but I think, you know, when you have had a catastrophe, a sudden loss, it's all consuming. It's all you can think about. It's very hard to get on with your daily work or your daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true here. You know, people were just, it was hard to work. People wanted to, uh, you know, grieve, be angry, talk about what they were feeling. And so it was important to create some spaces for that. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Lauren Mayer, President of Operations for NPR. If you've got a question for us, we'd love to have you join in the conversation. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Lauren, as you're going through this process of really making so much room for people to express themselves, to go through these stages of grieving, um, while you're trying to learn and piece together a pattern. How much of what you were hearing was specifically about sexual harassment and how much of it was about a broader kind of cultural problem? That was what was so interesting for me. Maybe interesting is the wrong word, but I thought we had an acute issue with sexual harassment, but that was really just the tip of the iceberg. And the the issues that got raised Sexual harassment was was obviously a concern and a piece, but the issues ran much deeper than that. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I, I came to think that they were really, people were really talking about power dynamics, um, that there was a deep concern about how people with power were treated in the organization and how people without power were treated in the organization. And sometimes... That look that, you know, that gets expressed as sexual harassment, but not always. You know, that can be uh, expressed as bullying. That can be expressed just as a sense of a lack of respect or, you know, just a deep sense of insecurity about your role in the organization. It's interesting that if we think about what it is and what it isn't, sexual harassment is fundamentally about power. And yet, not all of the culture problem, there were lots of culture problems about power that didn't manifest in sexual harassment. So how did you start to sort out what you needed to change in terms of policy, what needed to happen in terms of practice? Changing culture seems like one of the most easiest things to say and one of the hardest things to do. Yes. Um, You know, ultimately, I articulated what I called a roadmap that had five key elements, and under each of those elements, it had a number of action items. There were 21 altogether. Um, and I, I'll share what they were, but but I think for me, you can't, you can't say I'm going to quote-unquote change culture. It's too big and too amorphous. You have to have tangible sort of tactical steps to take, and when you do those in the aggregate and you're transparent about it, and you are relentless at it, that is how culture gets gets changed. Um, There's two important words you just, there are a lot of important words you've just said, in fact, all of them, but in particular, um, the transparency and the relentlessness of it. Um, that w- it sounds like from the moment you started these meetings, you were doing both. Do you feel like it started with the meetings, or was the relentless um, work something that happened afterwards? I think it started with the meeting, certainly, but I I think it it has continued afterwards. I mean, one of the tactical ways 
that I've tried to kind of live that notion of relentlessness is um, I send out a note to the entire staff every Friday that is an update on at the beginning, it was literally an update on where we were on the 21 steps on the roadmap. Um, you know, it just it talked about, you know, this is number three and this is what we've done this week and this is where we are. They, they've broadened a bit into be more about things going on around the company more generally, um, priorities, strategic goals, uh, broader issues of culture. Uh, but every week I'm reporting back on what we are trying to do to improve the culture here. And I think even if not everybody reads my note every week, they know that I haven't forgotten. You know, this is alive and real and a priority. Have you been watching open rates on the messages you're sending out? You know, I don't. I should actually ask our IT staff. <laughs> I, I uh, Perhaps I'm happy. Uh, I, I get good feedback. Yeah, perhaps that, I'm happy not knowing. But I, I, I get good feedback that I think people appreciate the effort. I would imagine just seeing your message in my inbox would almost be enough because it shows that you're adhering to the promise that you made and that you're continuing to do the work and you're continuing to report. It sounds like that in in some ways that alone could make a big difference because it was such a change from what had been happening before. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, some of these kind of management tools, they're so basic, like listening, um, (laughs) you know, and like telling people what you're doing. um, And then doing it. And do it. Right, right. Say, say, mm-hmm. do what you have said you're going to do. Um, and yet I think they really do. They are meaningful for people, because if you don't share those things, how do people know? So one question I, I've been wondering is you were part of this organization, too. Did you get a place where you got to process and deal with your own reactions to this? The wonderful thing is I have terrific colleagues who, um, you know, on the on the management team who were incredibly supportive of me, who, you know, none of this change effort could have happened without everybody being behind it. You know, we we've been talking about, you know, there's been a lot of I in this conversation, but there were a lot of people here uh, who cared deeply about these issues and who, who worked on, you know, worked on them just as I did. Um, and so that was wonderful. It was wonderful to have, uh, you know, a group of peers, you know, who I could share with. I also... You know, I did some of my own, you know, kind of emotional work, if you will, not at the office. You know, I, I, I have a, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, a very supportive family and a good group of, of friends, and they were instrumental to me in this period. I was going to ask, because one of the things that I think we all struggle with is when we're taking care of the people on our team, and it, it it's taxing. It's rewarding. It's important. It's often what we're there to do. Listening that way is actually hard work and emotionally exhausting. How did you pace yourself through this process? What did you do so that you could go home, be present for your family, and show up the next morning and be ready to do it all over again? Yeah, it is really emotionally taxing work. And, um, uh, you know, I, I really appreciated through this process that emotional work is real work. Um, I, I turned to yoga I, I, every morning I got up and did yoga. That was uh, very helpful for me to have a little time and space each day mm-hmm. um, to just b- be centered and grounded. Um, and so that, that was really helpful. I also, um, you know, I have kids who are, so, you know, middle school aged and uh, they weren't that interested in the problems <laughs> of work. And so, 
it was it was wonderful uh, to just be able to let go and try to be absorbed in you know the issues around the family table, um, and I was I was incredibly lucky and grateful to have that kind of love, support, and, you know, distraction at times. (laughs) It's funny how sometimes intensive parenting is actually a great distraction from work and ultimately one of the most rewarding things we do. Um, So it sounds like you were able to kind of integrate, but use both parts of your life to balance one another during this time. Yeah, I, I think I was. You know, I've, one of the things beyond this moment that I have sort of thought a lot about is how are you a role model for your children? Mm-hmm. Um, and I spend a lot of time at work, which means I'm not at home a lot of the time. Uh, and, you know, I think about that and what impact that has on my kids. And I, I've tried to be very intentional in, you know, when I am home to talk about why my, why my work is important, um, what kind of interesting problems I'm solving, why I think being at work is meaningful in the world because I want my children to think, you know, if I'm not with them, it's because I'm doing something that really is important and that matters So with um, and middle, that they can be excited about. So with middle school kids, they certainly know what's been going on in the world to some degree. Were you frank with them about what was happening at work for you? I was pretty frank. Yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty well grounded uh, in the in the basics of NPR at this point. And did you find that it was cathartic for you to talk about it with them? You know, I think it it does force a sort of clarity mm-hmm. of thought when you have to explain what's going on in a way, you know, either what had happened or what I was doing or why I was doing it because, you know, kids certainly ask very perceptive questions. Um, and so it forces you to really think about the the why of the things you're doing. So that was helpful. Because <laughs> I, I, I asked because the same thing happens with my daughter. And when I talk to her about these things, it's, it's like the ultimate final exam because you have to distill it down. Um, yeah. And as you went back to work each morning, um, how did you make sure, did you have any rituals that you went through before you went into these meetings other than your yoga? Uh, not really. I will say that, um, you know, I'm I'm a foodie. I love to cook. I love to eat. Uh, and <laughs> I, I joked that I was on the all anxiety diet uh, because I will say I had I just I had no appetite. So um, it wasn't much of a routine. It was like an anti routine. I was like, I'm going into the like, I, you know, I, I just nothing seemed good. I totally understand, which shows that this really was a lot to take on your shoulders. And it sounds like you embarked on it in a way that it, fundamentally changing the organization. We have to take a short break, but when we get back, I'm so looking forward to diving in really what this roadmap was and the action items and what you've seen happening since then. So, Lauren, hang in there. We'll be back shortly. We're going to take a short break. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. Um, Keep in mind, our phones are open, and we'd love to know how you're learning to listen. How are you dealing with these issues at your organization? You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also send us email if you like, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm Laura Zarrow. This is Women at Work. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Lauren Mayer. She's the President of Operations at NPR. And before the break, we've been talking about the extraordinary work that she's doing um, to change the organizational at NPR in the aftermath of what was a really noted and um, upsetting sexual harassment scandal. So, Lauren, welcome back. We're thrilled to have you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Lauren, before the break, you meant we you started mentioning as we were talking about kind of the emotional experiences and your listening tour that one of the things that came out of this was a roadmap, a series of key elements and action items about what you would do going forward. Could you tell us how did you formulate that from what you were listening to? And what did it look like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I think, as you noted before the break, sometimes in these conversations, you started to hear themes emerge. And so part of the work I did was really to try to synthesize what I was hearing and to boil it down into, you know, actions that we can take. Uh, and so I, I ultimately, I articulated a roadmap that had five main steps. And then Within each of those steps, there were subpoints, and I'm would you like? I'm happy to talk through what those were. I'd love to know what they were. All right. So, um, at the at the high level, the five key areas. The first was to address the past. So for us, that meant doing an independent investigation of how you know the situation with our head of news had been handled. There were staff had a lot of questions about how it had been handled and what happened, and so the board took the lead and. Uh, you know, had an independent investigation done of that. So that was the first step. We just, we needed to sort of put those questions to bed. Um, The second step on the roadmap was to fix our processes. What was clear in the conversations I was having was that people had no idea what our policies were. They really didn't know who to complain to if they had an issue. they, they didn't necessarily, what they did know, they didn't necessarily trust. Um, so that was the second thing. Uh, the third was to, what I said, understand the facts. There were a lot of issues that emerged in these conversations. One of the key issues that came up is that as an organization, we rely very heavily on temporary employees. Um, it was something that, honestly, I didn't, I wasn't even really aware of before all of this happened. And Temporary employees, by the nature of their jobs, you know, feel among the most powerless in an organization. They Mm. feel very vulnerable. Um, And that can play out, you know, in in a terrible case, that can play out as sexual harassment. But, you know, I heard stories of people saying, I was afraid to even, you know, ask for my phone line to move with me from one assignment to the next because I didn't want to be a bother to anybody. Um, You know, if you're not even willing to talk about that, you're certainly not going to talk about a supervisor who might be behaving, you know, inappropriately. Right, but um, that so also, wanted... sorry, that also suggests then that they felt like they couldn't even advocate for themselves to do their job well, never mind to avoid negative things happening in the organization. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was understand w- how many times do we have? Why are we so reliant on them? What does that situation look like so that we could figure out what to do? Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, um, you know, m- you know, one of the, I guess I'll call it a silver lining um, in our situation was that a lot of women around the organization really 
mobilized. They were upset and they wanted to take action. And um, so they had they also had a lot of thoughts and suggestions about what we should be doing. And one of the things that they advocated for very strongly was that we do a climate survey, that we actually do some analysis to understand what the situation was across the organization. So things like that were on my list for under, uh, you know, understand the facts. The, the next area was to strengthen our culture. And the things in this category are in some ways the hardest, the most long-term, the least tactical. You know, um, when we talked about fixing our process, you, you know, we put in place um, uh, an anonymous whistleblower hotline. Um, you know, important to do, but relatively straightforward, and you know when you've done it and you could check the box. Mm -hmm. Things that were on the list under strengthening our culture were things like improving our training. Um, or uh, one of the things that was really important to me was that we needed to clarify our cultural and behavioral values here. So I, I, what became, you know, obvious to me is that as an organization, we have very clear journalistic values. We know exactly what it means to do rigorous journalism, and there's there's no doubt across the organization. But we hadn't spent any time talking about what our behavioral values were, how we expected to be treated when we were at a team meeting. Uh, and I knew that we needed to talk about that more. And then the fifth area on the map was to strengthen our leadership. So at the moment uh, that all of this unfurled, we had obviously, we were without a head of news. Um, the CEO at the time, uh, had a medical issue and was out. Um, so, you know, while this was happening, uh, we had a vacuum at the top. Um, and we also, uh, our head of HR had left, and so we needed to replace our head of HR. So strengthening the leadership team was the the fifth area on the roadmap. So before we dive into these, because I have 100 questions about them, um, in this process, it's clear that you're trying to make a safe place for people to express themselves to identify problems. And interestingly, as you noted, the difference between fixing the processes and strengthening the culture is not just making a mechanism where people can report in, but making sure that people are trained to do something meaningful with that reporting, correct? Right. Um, what about um, protecting the people who might be accused? That's a good question and, you know, I said a lot through this process that it didn't feel like there was a clear roadmap. You know, we were really trying to figure it out as we went along. Um, there was a real hunger here uh, for transparency. I think that was in part because people felt like the situation with the head of news had been cloaked in secrecy, and mm -hmm. they were very upset about that. Um, it was also, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to say exacerbated, that's not exactly the right word, by the fact that we are an organization full of journalists. Um, and jur journalists, that's their job. Their job is to ask questions and try to get to the bottom of things and want to know know the facts and know the truth. Um, and that is what makes this a great organization. But when you're dealing with personnel issues, um, you have to balance transparency and privacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, one of, you know, one of the earliest communications I had with the whole staff um, as this was going on was about the need to balance privacy and transparency, that we wanted to be responsive to people's desire to know, um, but that that's not actually feasible um, when you're dealing with some of these issues where there, there may be multiple sides to a story. 
uh, where you really need to investigate and dig in. Um, and so we talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, if this were you on the other side, you would probably want some level of privacy while we were figuring things out. Absolutely. So did that fall under the policies or was that about culture or both? Uh, I think that's probably about both. Um, <laughs> you know, it has an implication on the policy side in terms of what people can expect if if they report an issue. So, you know, people had very legitimate questions, which is something's happened. I don't think it's right, but I'm worried that if I report this, this person's going to be fired. And that's not what I want. I just want whatever it was to stop. Um, and so being clear with people about there are a range of disciplinary actions, you know, at the at the most minor level, which is, you know, you get talked to by your manager and something goes in your record to we move you to a different part of the company to you're suspended to your, you know, it could be to your fired. It depends on what the action is and helping people understand that um, and helping people understand what they should expect in terms of communication from the company um, after something had come up. Um, if you were the one to make a complaint, what should you expect? And what should the staff overall expect? If, you know, if somebody has a problem with a manager and feels like, you know, they are being bullied, is that something that we are going to share company-wide? Is that the expectation that we have? And, you know, I think my, my view is no, that is not the expectation um, that we have. We try to, you know, deal with each incident at the appropriate level. Makes sense. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Lauren Mayer, President of Operations at NPR. If something we're discussing has sparked a question or you'd like to share a comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Lauren, as you're talking about this issue of, you know, when you're investigating people's claims, privacy matters on both sides of the equation. You need to keep the person who's been victimized um, to protect their identity so that they're not hurt further. Um, you also need to protect the person who's accused so that there's some kind of fair process. Yet you're in an environment, as you noted before, full of journalists. <laughs> how did you um, how did you create a kind of cultural norm so that they didn't just probe on their own. Were you able to? Uh, you know, it's a it's a very good question. I think we tried to be consistent about what people could expect in different situations and um, to sort of develop, if you will, a new norm in our behaviors. But it, it was it was definitely it was a challenging thing. Um, and in some cases, you know, people chose to talk to outside press entities. And so staff would read about something in another publication that we as a management team weren't commenting on because of privacy concerns. And that was very challenging. People really felt like, how can we trust the company if we're learning about this in another, you know, publication and we're not learning about it from you? And just trying to be sort of true to what we thought were the right values and approach um, kind of, you know, just hold that North Star through the storm is, is really what we tried to do. And I'm sure we did not satisfy people on multiple sides of the equation. But it sounds like it's also a continuing process. It, it is. Uh, I mean, I think it always is. I think we've tried to set the norms, um, 
you know, in a way that that people just know a little bit more what to expect. Lauren, we're hearing about sexual harassment in all kinds of industries. Obviously, in the media, it gets a lot of attention. Um, we've particularly in television, we've seen it correlated with people with singular celebrity, tremendous salaries. Um, is there any pattern that you see that might or uh, something that would explain the disconnect between those intense journalistic values that are so clearly upheld every day at NPR, but the lack of cultural values at play? I think part of it is, um, so two different answers. One, I think we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of our journalism and our journalism values and reinforcing it and providing training for it. And I think we underinvested in time mm. and resources in talking about our cultural and behavioral values and providing training um, for what we thought was, you know, sort of appropriate management. And so, you know, we didn't stress them. And th this is sort of me, but it, it goes back in time. We NPR has always been a pretty scrappy organization. Mm -hmm. You know, when we've had a single dollar to spend, we've invested it in our journalism because right. that is the core of who our journalism and our storytelling. And we, you know, we underinvested in our HR function. We underinvested in things like training. And I feel like we kind of, you know, reaped that uh, in, in what happened here. Um, I do also think, just to your first point, I, I, I really came through all of this thinking very deeply about power dynamics. I mean, so much of it is about, is just about power. And I think that it's exacerbated in situations where you have people who are quote unquote stars. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have an entire show that revolves around an individual, um, there's a lot of leeway given to that individual. You know, there's a lot of, oh, that's just, you know, Joe being Joe. Or, you know, we know that this star has low blood sugar at three in the afternoon, so we're always going to make sure we have a Diet Coke for them, right? Like, right. those things are very innocuous, and they're kind of built into everybody is working to make sure that... You know, the star who is driving the creative production and the economic engine has what they need. And I think, you know, I don't think that was the case here, but I, I think in some of these stories you see in the press, I, I my thought about them is I wonder if somehow that just sort of turned in a pretty dark way. Right, because when a system is designed to first help talent shine so it can perform at its at their best, um, and then it's about keeping talent happy so talent stays. That's when things can start to get murky if there isn't a kind of cultural framework to balance it. That's right. I, th I think that's right. And I think, you know, people in power have to understand what the rules and the cultural norms and the limits are. Um, so how are you helping people understand that now? Uh, we, you know, part of it is we spend some time talking about it. Uh, we, um, you know, in a in a sort of s tactical way, we we had had anti-harassment training here. It was every other year and it was digital. Um, and we've changed to in-person annual so that people really have a chance to talk through scenarios and talk about, you know, how things actually work. I think that's been very helpful. Um We've, we've done some work at various team levels. So our leadership team has done some work talking about what are our values and what's important to us and what do we want to sort of live and embody in our work. And 
various teams around the organization have also engaged in that. We've brought in some outside consultants to help with that kind of work. Um, and I also, uh, f- I, I try to talk about that. You know, par- some of what's in my weekly notes are just reminders about kind of what good behavior looks like here <laughs> and what what it doesn't. You know, if we have an incident where people are being really, you know, rude or inappropriate, sometimes I'll call that out as something that, you know, isn't okay here. Right, because it needs to be noted and stopped. It also sounds like, I want to jump back to something you were saying before, that the relentless, um, passionate focus on the highest possible quality journalism um, does mean that every dollar and most attention gets spent there. It reminds me of what I've seen in a variety of art forms where Mm -hmm. there's so, and it starts at the collegiate level and it extends into professional practice that there's so much to be learned, so much skill to be developed. It's um, and it's hard work and it takes time and that these are often cash strapped environments, not for profit organizations, artists who are working without really generating any income. And that it's it seems like it's the default to not include these kinds of professional cultural um, understandings in training. And Yet you now see a, a superb organization like NPR. You're needing to find money to invest in these resources. How are you juggling that in a not-for-profit setting? Well, we're making different budget choices, and we are investing in you know in our support areas. We've built up our HR team. We've added a training investment, and it's come at you know it's come at the expense of other things. It's come at the expense of some of our content creation areas. But if you I feel like everybody here recognized the profound cost of mm-hmm. not making those investments. Um, we spent a lot of time and energy uh, because we didn't have those things in place. And so I feel like it is absolutely money well spent with a very high return. Um, and I don't I, I don't think anybody here disagrees with that. <laughs> no. And it seems like they're probably quite comforted to see this being taken so seriously. Um, I mean, we are. We, sorry. We are just, a, you know, we are nothing without the quality of the people here. We're a, that that's what makes NPR great. And you need people to feel supported. You need them to feel like they're getting the training they need and they have career opportunities. And it's you have to invest in that. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking today with Lauren Mayer, who's the president of operations at NPR, doing an extraordinary job of how bringing new culture to one of our most cherished media organizations. If you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, one of the things that was in that long list of duties that you have, Lauren, is diversity, and I think of it as integral to culture, and also that journey between how do you, from an HR perspective, diversify your community, but how do you also create inclusion? and a sense of belonging and respect. Is that part of the work that you're doing now? Uh, It is, and it's an important part. I mean, part of what I heard, you mentioned, you know, what were the themes? And and one of this was a sense that this is not as inclusive a place as people expect it to be. Um, And we take that that very seriously. You know, when we think about diversity and inclusion here, we often talk about it in three dimensions. So we talk about it in terms of our staff, who's Mm -hmm. in the building, who's making decisions. We talk about it in terms of who you hear in our programming. What are our sources? Are our sources reflecting the diversity of this country? And then we think about it in our audience. Is our audience reflective of America? Um, And I think our our feeling is 
you have to start with the staff. If you don't have a diverse staff, you're not gonna you're not gonna be as likely to go after a more diverse set of sources. And if you don't have that, you're not gonna get the audience that you need. Um, so we think about it on those dimensions. How are what have you put into place? Now this is going back to your roadmap in a way. What are some of the policies and practices that you've put in place to help move in this direction? This is definitely an area where, you know, in that broader category of strength in our culture mm-hmm. where I think they, you know, we're not done. We're barely started. I think that <laughs> this topic fits squarely there. Um, one of the things that um, emerged as part of this work was actually there were a number of sort of grassroots efforts that took form um, that, you know, <laughs> The, the, there wasn't a lot of trust in management, and people kind of took things into their own hands and did wonderful things uh, and that, that are strengthening who we are. And one of those is that uh, a, a group of women here um, got, a, got a small grant and created a Women of Color mentorship program. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. It's, and, you know, the, what they have been able to create is really phenomenal. Um, and uh, because, you know, it was a, more grassroots, they their sense of what the important issues are is so spot on. And they, they recognize problems that I, I think, honestly, if we'd kind of, you know, sat in a corner office and tried to invent what this program should have been, we wouldn't have really understood. So one of the things, for example, that they did was they used some of the money they got in very small grants to allow people kind of more mid-career to have the professional development of going to conferences. At the corporate level, you know, we support you going to a conference if you have a speaking role. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But if you're, you know, slightly more junior and that's not who you are, but you want to go and network and and learn, we weren't really creating the form for that. And and this group really did that. So I think that is a wonderful example. Um, I, I just give another example of that kind of work, although it's mm-hmm. not connected to diversity and inclusion, which is that um, one of the things that we've created is a peer-to-peer anti-harassment support group. Uh, one of the you know, ideas that came up early was that people didn't necessarily uh, know their HR business partners or necessarily understand the process or even trust it, but that there were trusted people around the organization who they they would talk to. Um, And and sometimes people didn't even know if what they had was a formal complaint. You know, they felt like, I don't want to bring this to HR. Maybe it's not that big a deal, but I was at this meeting and it just felt creepy, you know, and what am I, what do I do with that? And so uh, we, this was totally staff led, you know, a a group of managers from across the organization pulled together a cross-functional team. They trained up a bunch of volunteers and we now have 30 or 40 people who sit across the organization who everybody knows if you have an issue, you can go to them and they will help you through the process. That's amazing. Both the idea um, how many people participate in it that emerged from within, but also the training so that you could have people that were known as these kinds of trusted resources, but they were equipped to handle the responsibility they were being given. What did the training include? Uh, we used SHRM, which is an organization of HR professionals, to sort of help them do some training on how to effectively do intake what to do with different kinds of issues and you know where to take those issues. And then we had training from some of our HR and legal teams so that they fully understood what were our practices and policies so that they could understand how to help people through the process. In another organization or under another person's leadership, I could see when a group organizes, gets a grant, and that they 
they're aimed at supporting themselves, in a way creating their own employee resource group, but in the middle mm-hmm. of a fraught context. It could be frowned upon or looked at as subversive. How did you communicate to them that you thought what they were doing was great? It's a you know it's a it's a very good question you know I'll say on the on the peer support group you know this this was an idea that bubbled up and um, there were a number of people that I talked to about who were very uncomfortable you know what do you mean we won't just use the formal official channels that we have how will this work and they could imagine all of the terrible ways that it could go wrong <laughs> right all the legal um, implications exactly exactly there's you know there were a thousand reasons why you should say no to these things. Um, I, I just I felt strongly that we were in a moment where, you know, <laughs> we needed to heal uh, and we needed to sort of use all the goodwill and the good ideas and the resources that we had across the company. And I don't think that those ideas can only come from the top. In fact, I think often, you know, it, it sort of goes back to what I said early on. I I do believe that you get more good ideas from talking to more people. And so it just it was a sort of core to one of my values. Yes. And also, Lauren, you didn't say no. You said yes. And. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) And I think that's made all the difference. Um, I hope everybody knows where to find NPR. But if people want to learn more about what you're doing, see what NPR is up to, where can they go for more information? Uh, They can always go to NPR.org. There is an about section that tells you about the company. Uh, And obviously, you can get all the news you want. If you want to listen on demand, NPR One is a great uh, listening device. You can listen to all our podcasts and our and our regular news content. I highly recommend it. Lauren, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and for the amazing work you're doing at an organization I love so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on at on Twitter at BizRadio132 and my and me at Laura Sarrow. I would, as always, like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall and Matt Datz, who's here sitting in for her today, my sound engineer, Jeff Simmons, and Michelle Abramovs, whose constant help gets me through every day. I'm Laura Sarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. When there's nothing left to hurt inside And we'll shine, yes we'll shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.